During our three midweek Advent services this year, we worship under the theme Advent Encounters. As strange words from strange prophets, they at least appear strange. And last week, the message was based on the words of John the Baptizer. His message was to show us the person of Jesus, Jesus who both judges the wicked and protects and redeems his own people. And tonight, we go to the Old Testament. We focus on the words of Zephaniah, a prophet that we actually know very little about. We know that he was active during the reign of Josiah, which puts him roughly 650 years before the ministry of Jesus. Um, He actually might have even been the king's cousin, uh, which might explain how he knew some of the things that he knew, but ultimately it doesn't really matter who he was. What matters is his message, because his message was from the Lord. And his message can be summed up nicely in uh, verse 7 of the first chapter of Zephaniah. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. As we look forward to the coming of the Lord at Christmas, tonight we look at another aspect of that. Zephaniah proclaims a message of judgment, but at the very end, the very end of this short book in chapter 3, there's an abrupt change of tone from sorrow to joy, and that's where the tension is found. So our theme for this evening is the prophet Zephaniah and a vision of joy in sorrow from Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who says, He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. For the past 50 years, a charity in St. Louis, Missouri, has partnered with a local newspaper to highlight the 100 neediest and most desperate cases to encourage generous giving during the Christmas season. One of the real-life stories this year is of a young woman they refer to only as Miss T. Miss T and her family have been bouncing around various domestic abuse and homeless shelters for the past few years, up until March when her mother was finally able to secure stable housing through Section 8. But that stability is now gone because four months ago in August, Miss T's mother passed away unexpectedly, leaving Miss T the sole caregiver for her five younger siblings. Now they have no income, 
and Miss T is too young to apply for federal aid. And so it's unclear how long they'll be able to stay in their home. It's unclear if they'll even be able to stay together as a family. I want to share to you what the mission of, of this charity is from their website. It says, With your help and big heart, we can make the holiday season a joyous one for thousands of people. I know it makes me sound a little cynical, but good luck, right? And now I know what they mean, and I'm really thankful that they are doing what they do. And I pray that God would bless their efforts. Compassionate acts are a great way to show Christ's love to the world, especially to those who are suffering. Well, let's be careful that we don't allow our ability to alleviate some forms of suffering to cause us to confuse the absence of suffering with joy. To do that would be to give ourselves way too much credit. But that's what sentimental visions of Christmas that come from commercials and classic films tend to do. They ask us to believe that true joy comes from the absence of suffering as problems are resolved and old conflicts are put to rest just in time to celebrate the joy of Christmas. Don't get me wrong, I like Christmas movies. I just mean to say that they don't really get this whole joy thing right all the time. Now, Christians certainly have real reasons to be joyful. God's love for us is, is overwhelming, and it gives us a sense of optimism about the future, and it causes us to reflect that love to those in the world who need it the most. But the question has to be asked, especially if we accept this sentimental view of joy as the absence of suffering, what exists when we can get rid of all sorrow, and we have to ask, what do we do with sorrow that persists? What do we do when sorrow continues even when we know joy? Does it mean that our faith is lacking? And does it mean that we're not really ready for Jesus? You know, Christians can fall into this trap too. There once was a, a class at a seminary, not our seminary, not the one operated by our church body, this was a class about preaching, and in this class were two young men who both had had successful careers before they came to the seminary, and their backgrounds really couldn't have been any more different. One of them used to work for Disney, and yet this young man was creative, and he was optimistic, and when he would speak about Scripture, his eyes would light up, and he had this way with words that made it feel like you were being led into a palace in God's kingdom where everything is bright and everything is beautiful and the walls are resounding with joy. The other student had been a homicide detective. His day-to-day -day was regular encounters with death, and one day he actually brought a photo album with him to class, not a photo album of some family vacation to Disney World, but a photo album filled with pictures of dead bodies. As, see, as part of his work, he had taught a course on wound identification, and these were photos of the wounds that he had helped to identify. And I want you to picture these two students side by side in the same class, discussing God's word. One who imagined life, one who revealed death. 
one who liked to fill people up with love and visions of the future that God had in store for them, and the other one who tended to bring them back to reality, to ground them in this world that's filled with sorrow and suffering. And a funny thing started to happen in that class. See, when things were starting to get a little too real, when in class the discussions from the one student would imprison them in prisons of of God's judgment and the sin in the world, the class would turn to the other one for escape. They actually called him Mr. Disney, and they quoted from Psalm 137. They would say, Mr. Disney, sing us one of those songs of Zion. And the professor soon realized what was going on, that the students were buying into that false idea about the nature of joy and sorrow, where they were beginning to define one as the absence of the other, as if they were on opposite ends of a spectrum. And this idea then also that faith in this world is about somehow moving ourselves to the joy side and keeping ourselves there. And I want you to consider how isolated that idea makes people feel during the Christmas season. While a world celebrates joy and some people are feeling distanced from the celebration, like the death of a family member, a cancer diagnosis, the loss of a job. These are things nobody wants to hear about at a Christmas party. And so people tend to stay distant and stay silent. They still suffer, but they suffer alone. And you know, they can even begin to feel distanced from their church as if their sorrow shouldn't be seen, not at a time of joy. But during Advent, God brings us into an encounter with his word. He brings us into his classroom where he really shows us what it means to be joyful, what it means to be prepared for him. It's not a joy in the absence of sorrow. It's a joy in the presence of the one who comes to us in the midst of our sorrow. And this is exactly what's happening in this vision from Zephaniah. Now, the part that I read, I admit, didn't seem to have a lot of sorrow in it. It was pretty joyful. But those short sentences, that small section It's unlike anything else that you read in the entire book of Zephaniah. It's kind of like the photo album. It is filled with dead bodies. It's a devastating vision of divine judgment. Here are the first words of God that Zephaniah records. He says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth. And would you believe me if I told you it went downhill from there? Because if anyone was thinking after that, you know, I don't think God was talking about me. Well, God starts to name names, so to speak. He starts naming all the groups of people who have profaned his name. He said he would stretch out his hand against all those who rejected him, who used his temple to worship idols, the priests, the people, the princes, the list goes on. And when the sun sets on the day of the Lord's judgment, he wasn't done yet. Zephaniah gives us the image of the Lord continuing his search late into the night, wandering around Jerusalem with a lamp to check every single corner to make sure not one person escaped judgment. And the most horrifying part of this vision is when the Lord gathers the nations of the world and prepares a sacrifice 
to be offered while they look on. But this is no ordinary sacrifice. Zephaniah says, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. The victim to be sacrificed on the altar wasn't a bull. It was his own people. He places them on the altar and he slaughters them as the nations of the world look on in horror at this spectacle of judgment. Now I tell you, if joy and sorrow really are opposites, then the vision of joy, the song of joy at the end of Zephaniah really would seem out of place, but it actually fits perfectly. It's kind of like the traditional Advent wreath. Our Advent wreath has four blue candles, but maybe you've, you've seen other Christian traditions, maybe even here at some point in the past, where one of the candles is pink or rose-colored. That candle represents joy. And in the midst of the Advent season, in the midst of all that's going on, all that's going on in the world, a single glimmer of joy. And this is exactly what we have in this song of Zephaniah. Now, we could remove it from its context. We could skip over the judgment and the wrath, but if we did that, I think we'd be missing something. We'd be getting the wrong idea of what joy is and specifically what Zephaniah's joy is. It's not a joy without sorrow. It's a joy in the presence of the one who comes to us in the midst of our sorrow. And that judgment, that horrifying vision of the sacrifice, it's like that disturbing photo album in another way, because even though it's uncomfortable, let's not look away. Because the terrible wounds that we read about the Lord inflicting on his people tell us something about him. We can do some wound identification of our own. First, we learn about God that he rules over all the nations. There is no people, there is no nationality, no social or political division that we could invent that could shield anybody from his judgment. Second, we learn that his power is overwhelming. Our Lord is the one who creates. He's the one who destroys all according to his will and his wisdom. And third, and finally, and I think this is the most important point for us tonight, is that the Lord is present in the midst of his judgment. And I don't mean that he's present in the form of the executioner or the judge. Because in that vision of the sacrifice his own people, we see in the Old Testament a glimpse of joy. A glimpse of God with his people, with us in Christ. And we see it because of Christmas. Because when Jesus was born into this world, it was no longer about the chosen people. It's about the chosen one, the Messiah, the one who was chosen to be the Savior, who was chosen to be the sacrifice. His is the one body that was offered up on the altar of the cross, bearing the eternal punishment of our sin. The Lord will not leave his people alone in judgment, but he comes to us in the midst of it, and he takes it on himself. Christmas leads us to the cross where joy and sorrow meet as the Father kills his own Son and joyfully receives us. The Son, in sorrowful joy, gives up his own life and then he rises and he ascends to sit at the side of the Father in heaven, still bearing the wounds that brought us life. 
And now the Spirit works through us to bring this word to this world and to us. To bring us that joy in the midst of sorrow. To make that joy our own. This is what Zephaniah is singing about at the end of his book. He says, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you and his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The problem with pitting joy against sorrow, with thinking of one as the absence of the other, is that it might make us think that we can't celebrate Christmas until we get rid of all the sorrow in our lives. We can't celebrate Christmas if we're not feeling the Christmas spirit. But what do you do when sorrow, when real sorrow comes into your life, when it knocks on your door, when it lives in your house, when it sleeps in your bed and wakes you up at night, and when it won't go away, no matter how tightly you hang on to the joy, what then? What about when you're the only one in church that you think is suffering while everyone else is singing joy to the world? Well, let's not forget why Jesus came. And let's not forget who he came for. He didn't just come for the joy of Christmas. He came for the sorrow of the cross. And he came to prepare a place for us. And we'll remember that even while we're singing the words, let every heart prepare him room. We're remembering that he's preparing a room for us. A place where all peoples and all nations will gather before him and and while we wait for him to return and to take us back to him, he's given us this place. This place where we can bring all of our joys and celebrate them here and all of our sorrows and mourn them here and we bring all of them to him in prayer. And we do so without fear of judgment because he has taken all judgment away from us and taken it on himself. And now... For us, there is no more rebuke. He's brought us to the Father who will rejoice over us with singing, who will quiet us with his love. This is God's gift of Advent joy. Not a joy in the absence of sorrow, but joy in the presence of Jesus, the one who comes to us in the midst of sorrow. And this is a joy that will never end. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.